Hey, this is Lori from Hike, sharing stories that inspire us to explore, wander, and live. So in today's episode, I get to bring you Nancy East of Hope and Feather Travels. She has an interesting story to tell us today about adventuring in the Great Smoky Mountains. She is a naturalist. Uh, She attended the Tremont Institute and completed their program, which is on the Tennessee side of the Great Smoky Mountains. She's also a search and rescue volunteer, so we get into uh, what it's like to be on a search and rescue team and some of, you know, how that impacts her and and things she does to help um, educate people on being safe in the mountains. And then we talk about her challenges, you know, some of the things that keep her going. One is she completed the 900 miler challenge of hiking all of the trails in the Great Smoky Mountains. And the other is upcoming. So she is attempting the Tour de la Conte. Now, if you don't know what the Tour de la Conte is, which I really didn't know about until recently, it is a challenge of hiking all of the six trails that go up to the Mount Leconte Summit, which is the third highest peak in the park, and you do it in 24 hours. So basically, it is about 44 miles and I believe over 11,000 of elevation gain. So you're getting three summits in in 24 hours. And, you know, it's it's a tough feat. And she is doing this all in the name of helping Friends of the Smokies Trails Forever program. And that program right now is working on the Trillium Gap Trail, which is one of the trails up to the Mount Lacan Summit. So she's raising money for Friends of the Smokies and having a lot of fun along the way. So if you're interested as well, if you're a newer listener and haven't uh, listened to some of the older episodes, we talk about a few of the former guests. So you might want to go back to episode three and listen to my interview with Plug It In Hikes, which is actually the first interview I ever completed for a podcast. So, um, So it's way back there. Episode 11, when I talked to Anna from Friends of the Smokies, And episode 36, which is a little more recent, when I talked to Johnny Osborne, also known as Johnny on the Trail, who is also a great Smoky Mountains adventurer. So take a listen to my conversation with Nancy, and I look forward to hearing what you think about the episode. All right, so today I'm here with Nancy East. Um, thanks for coming on the show, Nancy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very honored to be talking to you. Well, I'm excited to talk to you and hear more about, you know, what you've been up to and your hikes and, and just so much to cover. So I guess first, maybe to give a little background. So where are you located at? Where are you uh, coming from? Sure. Yeah, I live in Waynesville, North Carolina, which is just about 30 miles west of Asheville. Um, Most people know Asheville more than they know Waynesville because we're not as large of a community. But we are just outside of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Uh, Haywood County, the county that Waynesville is in, is home to Pisgah National Forest, um, at least where Shining Rock Wilderness and Middle Prong Wilderness are. A lot of people are familiar with those two areas because they're so popular. Um, So yeah, I've been here about 22 years now. Oh, that's such a beautiful area. I 
just was even um, able to get up there and do a little bit of hiking off the Blue Ridge Parkway. And it's just so gorgeous. Um, just even this time of year, the, the leaves are starting to turn and you're seeing a little bit of the color. So I'm sure you just look outside and it's um, it's probably beautiful right now. It really is. Yeah. And I remember when I first moved here, somebody that I work with told me, once you live here a while, you'll look out the window and you really won't see the beauty anymore. And I remember it really worried me because I thought, oh gosh, what if that happens? And it's not as precious as it is to me, you know, right now. And thankfully, 22 years in, not a chance. Every morning I wake up and I'm truly so thankful for the view out my window. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, people, I mean, people just you know, do anything for that view. I mean, so yeah, yeah. you're really lucky. Um, I know I miss it every time I, I go home and, you know, get out of the mountains. There's just something about that, that space, the mountains, the, you know, the rolling hills of it, the layers. It's just a, just a beautiful place to be. It definitely is. So you said you've lived there for 22 years. So before, um, did you come from flatland or <laughs> were you always yes. in the mountains? Pretty flat. Uh, the rolling hills of Auburn, Alabama um, is where I went to veterinary school, but okay. I grew up in Atlanta on the outskirts of Atlanta. So certainly more of an urban environment that I ended up in as an adult. But um, there's a, a little sign that my aunt gave me when I first moved here that said, if you're lucky to live in the mountains, you're lucky enough or something along that line. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. Um, I just feel so blessed to have finally come home in a sense, because uh, this is definitely where I'll call home, I think the rest of my life. So when you uh, were in, you know, growing up in Atlanta, did your family like take you up to North Georgia and, and into, uh, you know, the Appalachian Mountains and things Were you, did you get exposed to that at a young age? No, interestingly, I did not. My family, while very outdoor oriented, it was more along the lines of crazy stuff like riding motorcycles. My dad has been a career pilot, but he also was an, an aerobatic pilot. So we were doing Oh, wow. So were you go. like going in like, in the planes with him and he was doing spins and all that kind of stuff? Not the craziest stuff, but yeah, sometimes <laughs> he would, you know, do a few things with us. And honestly, I've never been much of a risk taker in a lot of ways. And so it would always scare me. <laughs> I would always say, Daddy, please don't do that. So you didn't get that gene from your dad? (laughs) No, definitely not. But yeah, so we were always, um, you know, just more outdoor oriented in those kind of ways. I never camped a day in my life until I was 20 years old. So um, it was just a kind of a a whole new experience for me when I finally went. So what then got you into kind of getting outdoors? What, What sparked that interest and that love? I think I've always been one of those people who's just naturally inclined to go outside. Uh, It's definitely where I just can breathe, you know, more easily and um, just have this deep connection to the natural world. I remember as a child, I never really had to be reminded to go outside, or at least that's my own memory. My parents may have a different opinion of that, but um, I just loved the woods behind our house. Even though we grew up in Atlanta, it was in a bit of a more um, unincorporated section of, of Fulton County. Well, I think people don't realize, um, and I know I didn't before I started uh, working a lot in Atlanta, is that how much uh, greenery and trees and you know wooded areas there are in the Atlanta yes. area. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that they've protected and preserved a lot of that. And it's certainly changed. You know, I go home now and it's not the same place that I grew up. Even my own neighborhood feels a little different. But um, but yeah, you're right. They do a good job of that. And it's it's wonderful. 
so you said, you know, you've always loved the outdoors and, you know, sparked, uh, you know, that love. And then you ended up 20 plus years ago, you ended up in the, you know, the Smokies area. So tell me a little bit about just hiking in the Smokies and what's so special about it. Yeah, gosh, I could go on all day about that question. Um, you know, the Smokies are where I find myself returning to time and time again, even though just, you know, practically in my own backyard, I could walk out and, and take some amazing hikes. There's just something about the Smokies with the intentionality of protecting it and preserving it to the level that national parks do that makes it pretty sacred to me. Um, I took some courses several years, um, well, several years ago, but now I'm a graduate of the naturalist program through the Great Smoky Mountains Institute at Tremont on the Tennessee side of the park. And yeah, it was a great program. So tell me about the naturalist program. So what what is that about? I mean, are you learning about the geography, about the, you know, the the plants, everything there? What what do you uh, what comes with that program? Yeah, it's a series of about, I want to say, eight courses. They change it every so often. And when I took it, it was about, I think, eight courses long. And they're all just long weekends, Friday through Sunday. And you go and live. They have some dormitory-style lodging that you go and stay in. And it's it's intense. It's jam-packed from, you know, before the sun even comes up, usually until well after the sun sets. And it's a lot of outdoor learning, obviously, you're out in the field. But then there's some classroom work, too. Uh, but it covers everything from, gosh, the flora and fauna of the park to just some of the natural history, the evolution of how the landscape came to be, to even teaching you more like interpretive skills to then go out and share your knowledge, you know, and create oh. So, so what do you, what have you been doing with that? I mean, have you kind of led some hikes? Are you informing or educating others? I, I know, and I want to talk about this as well, because I know you have a blog, um, that you've, you know, have up. And so kind of, how does that feed into, you know, that knowledge and what you learn there? What, what have you applied it to? Sure. Yeah, I know lots of things, really. I mean, anything from going on hikes with my family and friends and just pointing out different things that we see along the way. And because uh, you really develop a more intimate relationship, I think, with the landscape when you know the names of these plants and uh, animals that you see and know, you know, just different facts about them. So I love just to share my knowledge in a general sense like that. But I've also started to do more group-led hikes through a meetup group in the Smokies. And I try to point things out if people are interested on those. Um, even through just my local community, I've done more outreach and tried to educate folks on hiker safety and preparedness type topics through in my search and rescue team, which I know we may get into talking about later. Yeah. Um, but then so, I always check that stuff too. Yeah. So let's talk about the um, kind of what you're imparting and kind of the things you learn. So what's, um, what's your favorite piece of like little trivia or knowledge that you like to share that you learned when on your hikes? What's, mm. what's one of them? Gosh, be something. You know, in a broad sense, probably the edibles, the wild edibles. Ah, no, that's a good one to have. Yeah, it's it's a one that can get people in trouble. Obviously, you don't want to just go out and pick something unless you're a hundred percent sure you know what it is. Oh, and I know, and a, yeah. even stuff like you know, I know that there's like, um, isn't there like wild blueberries and and different things? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But and, I and I never want to risk it. <laughs> exactly. No, it's always yeah. wise to go with somebody who knows what uh -huh. they're doing 
you know that they know what they're doing, you know, and, 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 you know, things like mushrooms, that type of stuff, I don't even get into at all because I don't want to risk it either. But, um, you know, for instance, there's something uh, called Indian cucumber, cucumber root, that the root of this plant tastes like a cucumber. And it's a really interesting little plant anyway, the way it grows and, and, it's just a cute little plant in my opinion, but yeah, I would have never known that you could eat the root of this plant, um, you know, until I'd taken this course at Tremont. But on that note, when you're in the park, the park obviously doesn't want you to forage and dig up these yeah. things. But it's, it's, I mean, but it's good to know. I mean, you never know what, what kind of situation you might get into and, and exactly. knowing the land and how you could sustain yourself um, for a day or two if you needed to um, is, is good to know. Yes. For sure. So you also mentioned um, the meetup group. So uh, what's the meetup group that you're uh, you're doing hikes with? Yeah, it's uh, the acronym for it is GSHAG, and it stands for. Let me think. I always have to think about it. Great Smokies Hikers and Adventurers, I believe, is is the full name of it. Um, but yeah, it's been around for quite a while. It has a few thousand members, I believe, oh, wow. now, and certainly some are active, some aren't, and people kind of come and go, but. I was tag teaming for a while with someone on my search and rescue team who teaches uh, like backpacking 101 type courses through GSHAG, which are wonderful. And he does this all just out of the goodness of his own heart. And oh, that sounds really cool. I mean, that's something I would definitely be interested in. Oh, you should. Lane is just a godsend and he is such a good educator and just very humble and has a lot of experience under his belt. He's retired now, so has a lot of time to give in this way. Um, but yeah, I've helped him with some of those courses as time allows. It's hard for me to break free as much as he does. But then I started to just kind of lead day hikes on my own here recently. And then that's been interesting and rewarding. You know, it's very different when you're leading a hike versus tagging along to somebody else's. Just the responsibility is a lot greater. But um, you know, I'm getting my feet wet, it, wet with it, and it's been great so far. So tell me a little bit about what you're enjoying about that, um, you know, leading the, the hikes and and how that is different. Yeah, I think probably the thing that I like the most is, I mean, I always enjoy being with other like-minded people in the woods. I hike quite a bit solo just in the day-to-day, -day, and so it's always nice just to have some company every once in a while to go on these hikes with and get to know other people and the things that they like about hiking and develop these relationships. But a lot of times people who haven't hiked much will come on these trips. And so that's always a great opportunity to try to educate them and pay it forward. So they don't wind up, you know, being somebody that my search and rescue team has to go out and look for later in, in an unfortunate circumstance. So that's been a big benefit of it too. Um, but mainly just for the, the camaraderie. I love that sense of community in the Smokies. Yeah. And I know, I've talked to a couple other hikers in the Smokies, um, most recently Johnny Osborne. And yes, one of the things, yeah, he talked about was the hiking community and how wonderful the community is. It is. I love the community as a whole. It um, is just very warm and welcoming and receiving. We're all very supportive of each other. You know, Johnny's Facebook page is a prime example of that. It's, gosh, I don't even know how many people are in it. I think over 20,000 now. And um, you just feel like you get to know these people, even in just a virtual sense. So then when you do see them on a trail, because often you'll recognize somebody on a trail from that group, it's just a pretty cool experience. You know, social media certainly has its pros and cons, but it's one of the big benefits to me is groups like that that are just very uplifting and encouraging. It's definitely made the world smaller. 
For sure. Yes, yes. Definitely a good thing in that regard. So have you hiked in other locations besides, you know, the General Smokies area? Have you gone to, um, you know, any other places like out west or, you know, the northeast? Oh, yeah. All over the place. We have always been a very outdoor-oriented family, just my husband and, and our three kids. And so we try to take them on a vacation that revolves around a national park. Or like this past summer, we went over to France and hiked the Tour de Mont Blanc. And that was, you know, just an amazing oh, wow. experience, kind of one of those bucket list trips that I think our kids, they're all teenagers now. And so they're a little bit harder to please. You know, they don't just go along for the ride as easily and have stronger opinions. But I think they really like this one, the fact that we hiked hut to hut and, um, you know, didn't just backpack the whole time. And So, yeah. They, so tell me a little bit about that. So how long is the trail and or, or how long uh, was your portion or, or what you hiked? Sure. Yeah, it was, I think about 110 miles is what we wound up hiking. And people, you can take a lot of different trajectories on the Tour de Mont Blanc. There's not just a, I mean, there is a specific path, but there are some high routes, low routes, that kind of thing. So we just chose what we felt like our kids were, I mean, they were capable of really any of it, I think physically, but what they would enjoy the most from, um, you know, an exertion standpoint. And just took our time, you know, getting around the mountain and stayed in a few little villages along the way. Some of these refugios that are, uh, you know, up in the higher elevations. And it was great, you know, to have a shower at the end of the day, to somebody to cook your dinner and serve you breakfast. It was really, you know, more glamping than it was anything. But it was just a, a really profound experience. And you go through three countries as you do the tour. You go through Switzerland, Italy, and France. So you get to three different cultures. And yeah, I highly recommend it. It uh, can be, you know, a more expensive trip if you get a uh, service to make all your bookings in these places. But I just DIY'd it and it wasn't that hard, really. And we saved probably 50%, you know, what it would have done it. Yeah. And with a family of five, we never could have afforded to do it, you know, any other way. So it worked out well. So tell me, I guess, tell me about your favorite day on that hike or, you know, that trip. You know, Gosh, that's a good question. Yeah, no, I mean, it's hard because they were all, we had spectacular weather. They were going through the heat wave in Europe when we were there. So it was really, really hot the first few days. So it was hard to really enjoy it when I just felt like I'm going to have a heat stroke if I don't get out of this heat at some point. But I mean, not really, but it was, it was definitely hot. But I think honestly, probably my favorite day was a day that they were predicting for the first time some strong thunderstorms in the afternoon. And that was one of my concerns going into it was not being exposed because I knew that this particular route had severe electrical activity when they did have storms. And so we chose an alternate route that only took us about two miles to our next refugio. This was on the Italian side and we stayed at a place called Refugio Bonatti, I think is the name of it. And we got there early because we only had to hike a couple miles in, but it was such a gift because we got to just spend the day basking in this mountain landscape that was really otherworldly. I just can't even begin to describe it. You felt like you could reach out and touch the Alps. It was just spectacular. Um, so that wound up being probably my favorite day, honestly, because it was such a laid back one, which usually I'm the one to say, let's go out and hike 20 miles, not two. And uh, so for me to say that was the best one is is pretty telling of how great it was. I know. I, I was thinking about that just recently about kind of like the whole alpine feel versus, you know, when you're kind of in, in the tunnel or in, you know, the canopy. And I mean, I do like both, 
But there is something about being out there and just exposed and feeling like you can touch the sky. So I can just imagine um, yeah, how beautiful that must have been. Definitely. And those thunderstorms, by the way, never came in. So we just, you know, sat outside all day long and took a couple of little short little jaunts from the place where we were staying just to, you know, get up a little higher even. But yeah, it, it was pretty amazing. So since you were staying at huts, I think, or you said different places, I mean, what kind of gear did you have to have? Uh, what what did you have to take with you um, to, when you're on the trail? Not nearly as much. Now, I wound up taking more um, just because I usually do by default and carrying your you know, 10 essentials. Kids, the 10 essentials yeah. for sure. Yeah. And then some. So, yeah, I was the most weighted down probably of all of us on the trip, which was fine. Um, you know, I always like to think of it as, as just better training for something else I'm going to do. But the kids just had to carry, you know, clothes for sleeping or a change of clothes if we ran into bad weather, that type of thing. Um, you really didn't have to carry much food because you could get food at the different towns that you would pass through frequently enough to load up. So, um, you know, for like lunch and things like that, you didn't have to carry more than a day or two's worth of lunches. And then you were fed breakfast and dinner where you stayed. So it was, you know, a lot, a much lighter trip than you would have to take backpacking. And it felt more like day hiking, really. Um, oh, nice. So easy in that regard. Yeah. 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 So, um, and something, and, you know, as you were talking about, you know, being prepared, it made me think of kind of your, of your blog. And I know you've been doing some things and some kind of series and, and just trying to educate people new to hiking, uh, people that need to know information. So can you tell um, us a little bit about that and kind of what you do with your, with your blogging and, and, you know, informing people about, you know, kind of the hiking basics and stuff like that? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I started my blog back in 2011. It was the wake in my mom's death. She died of cancer in her 50s. And so it was one of those just, you know, earth shattering events in my life because I was very, very close to her. And I needed just a, a better outlet than just being depressed all the time to deal with my grief. And so writing's always been cathartic. I started to write just about grief, the day-to-day -day of life with, you know, young children and homeschooling at the time, but then it evolved into more of a kind of a hiking tra a trail journal of sorts, because I started to do more hiking after she died, and my kids were a little bit older, and, and you know, I'd taken kind of a hiatus with that part of my life, but when I got out on the trails, I realized that that was really when my grief got dialed in as far as you know, recovering from it in the sense of, of feeling like I was in that deep pit of despair that I had to claw out of. Um, I even have a tattoo on my calf with symbols of my mom. And at the bottom, it says Salvatore Ambulando, which is a Latin phrase for in walking, it will be solved. And so, you know, that's just how I feel about hiking is that it solves so many of, of life's woes. But now it's it's kind of evolved even since then to become more, like you say, an, an outdoor education resource. I write quite a bit on um, you know, specific things like, say, hypothermia or what to do if you encounter, um, you know, a wild animal or something like a venomous snake in the woods. And that all stemmed from my involvement, but, you know, becoming a search and rescue team member, essentially being exposed to the mistakes people make most of the time in ignorance. You know, they have no idea that they're going to have happened what happens because they just don't know what they should be prepared to expect. Um, and so it stemmed from that, just wanting to have a platform to pay it forward and hopefully keep people from getting in trouble the way they do sometimes. So what led you to get involved with search and rescue? 
Yeah, good question. That was something that happened about four years ago in Haywood County. A woman came over from Tennessee to do a day hike to the top of Cold Mountain and back. And she did what she was supposed to do. She left an itinerary with her husband back home. But when she didn't return that night, obviously he called the authorities, told them where she was supposed to be. And about 48 hours later, they found her on the side of Cold Mountain in and out of consciousness. She was alive, but in pretty bad shape, had some severe head injuries, a pretty badly mangled ankle. She had leaned against a tree along the side of the trail that happened to be dead, and it fell down the mountain, taking her with it. Um, So it was, you know, a pretty bad fall. And it really opened my eyes to two things because it was highly publicized. You know, any search that goes on more than a day, all of a sudden the news outlets pick up on it and it's everywhere. And I had no idea that Haywood County even had a search and rescue team. Um, But I also had no idea that it was something that I would even want to channel my energies into. And I did. I I called the next day after she was found and, and called the rescue squad and just said, you know, I'm interested in this. Is It's something that I could apply for. And I did have to apply and go through a process of physical fitness test and training and, you know, exams of physical, you know, nature and, and skills and written stuff. But yeah, I was accepted on the team. And it's been one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. What about, I mean, so you had to take a test, you know, to make sure, I guess, physically, you know, and just from a knowledge base and uh, that you would be a good fit. But what about the mental kind of approach to it? Because I, I I mean, just from an outsider kind of looking in, it just feels like it would be so mental, like stress and strain and the emotional roller coaster of, of searching for someone and, you know, whether you find them safe or not, and the whole aftermath that comes with that. A really good question. And, uh, you know, everybody handles that part differently. I am definitely just a feeler by nature. And Mm -hmm. so every time we go on a search, I really do go into it just almost inherently thinking this could be my family member. This is my family member I'm looking for. And with that type of, of focus to try and, you know, figure out, you know, how to best solve this problem. But yeah, some of them are more challenging than others. Any type of suicide recovery, obviously, is just immensely tragic. And those are hard to, to shake sometimes. Um, luckily, most of our searches end with very happy endings and quickly. And so, you know, the, the ones that are really serious and end in tragedy certainly weigh on me. But I know that for the greater good, I have to just stick with it and, and learn to deal with those things, usually by going out and hiking, you know, and, and just clearing my head of, of the trauma that sometimes I can face after those. But, yeah, it's it can definitely be a challenge in that regard. Um, but you just I think some people are better equipped emotionally to deal with it. And I'm not saying I'm that person because I definitely take these so seriously in my own heart. Um, but I just know how much good I'm doing. And that outweighs any stress that may come from it for me afterwards, at least in a temporary sense. And what about your fellow search and rescue members? I mean, are you leaning upon each other? How are you? Um, I guess, how does, uh, let me try to figure out how to phrase this, but basically the, you know, the team itself, how do they kind of recover or move forward after a search? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm friends with so many people on our team and we are a really tight knit group of people. A lot of the people on our team work in emergency services already. They're EMTs or paramedics, firefighters, that type of work. And so I think they've, you know, over the years have have certainly become conditioned to 
deal with this type of stress. You know, but at the same time, PTSD in that particular field of work, I know is a very real thing. Um, you know, and Benny Braden, somebody you've interviewed on this yes. podcast before is, is a huge advocate for that and has really opened my eyes in particular to how much of a problem that is. So, you know, you can just hope that people will get the help that they need if they're feeling those types of emotions afterwards. But, you know, I think most of our team, they, they feel like they, they handle it pretty well from what at least I see on a surface level and some of them on a, a deeper level because I am closer friends with them. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely can be challenging for anybody, I think, no matter, you know, how equipped you are to deal with it. So, I mean, obviously, the best thing would be is to not have to get not for someone not to get into that situation. So. So tell me, you know, from a prevention perspective, what are the tips that you would give people to say, these are the things to help avoid getting yourself in a, a place where we have to come find you? Yeah, really good question. I would say to focus your energies on two different things. One would be to learn what those 10 essentials are, but just as importantly, know how to use them. You know, waterproof matches aren't going to do a darn bit of good in your backpack unless you know how to build a fire with wet wood in less than ideal conditions. And that takes practice. It's not something that most people can learn to do just on the fly, um, you know, and, and know things like hypothermia, how they happen, how the cascade of events can so quickly turn sour and you can become your own worst enemy just with the way you behave with hypothermic situations if you don't have somebody recognizing that you're acting completely illogical, you know, during these different stages. Um, so I think that's as important as, as just carrying those essentials is, again, learning how to use them and educating yourself on what risks might I might encounter on this particular hike and having that broad knowledge base of at least having some semblance of an idea of what you would do to mitigate a certain situation. I do a lot of hiking alone, and I know that, you know, some people have a viewpoint of, you know, you shouldn't hike alone, you know, there's more risk involved. And, you know, when you were just mentioning about hypothermia, and of course, if you had someone with you to recognize some of that, you know, that's going to, you know, help tremendously so they can, and if they know how to react to it and, and get your you know body temp up again, then, you know, that's good. But for someone who's a solo hiker, is there anything else that you would recommend or, um, or any tips you would provide? Um, for hypothermia? No, just, just in general of being aware and, and kind of, uh, making sure that you're going to be safe. Yeah. So you, do you mean just, and sorry for the clarification, just no, in regard okay. to, um, you know, like resources and things like that yes. or, yeah, I mean, certainly I, you know, like I said, write about a lot of these things on my blog. There are certainly some more credible sources, you know, that have YouTube channels. And that's the thing with some of these channels and blogs and all of that. You just have to be careful, you know, that you're looking at a credible source of information and not somebody just, um, you know, kind of spouting off what they think might be the best idea or, or the best thing. And, and I certainly am first to admit that I don't know all the answers. And a lot of my blog posts that I write, I do pretty exhaustive and extensive research before I publish a thing. 
And I still sometimes don't get it right. And people are quick to call you out on it who do know the right, you know, protocol for certain things. And, and I always, you know, as long as they're doing it in a kind and, and helpful manner and not being disrespectful, I always thank these people and, and thank them anyway, no matter how they do it. But you know, that's the, the thing you have to be careful with. Certainly, there are lots of books out there that cover these topics as well. People seem to not read books as much anymore these days and go to the internet for a lot of this information, and sometimes myself included. So that's why I've mentioned those sources. But, you know, and certainly educating yourself with classes. You know, REI, I know, offers quite a few courses like this, uh, and other outfitters do the same. And I've even started to take on just some basic safety and preparedness clinics that I, I run just free of charge just to try to pay it forward to the local community and teach them those skills. But other communities, I'm sure, have similar things with search and rescue teams that do stuff like that. So do you have any of those coming up uh, this fall? I don't this fall just yet, only because I've been training for something rather big that's taken up a lot of my time. I but... know. I can't wait to talk to you about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the rest of life on the back burner, but I'll definitely do it again. Yeah, because there's a, a little local ball that it's called Purchase Knob. It's part of the national park that I like to hike up to with people. It's a great place to teach just very basic navigation skills with map and compass, because um, that's one of those things that really is, to me, almost impossible to learn by watching a YouTube video. It takes being out in the field with a resource like a book in hand to, you know, sequentially go through the steps of doing the things you need to know. So when you do offer them, I guess, are they... If, can I go to your website and uh, sign up? Can you can you just give the listeners a little more information so we know where to go? Sure. Yeah. Probably the best place is the Facebook page of my blog, which is Hope and Feather Travels. Um, it's a riff on an Emily Dickinson poem that my mom once gave me. But um, yeah, that's that's where I usually post them. I have an associated Facebook group as well where I try to cover a lot of outdoor education topics. I was for a long while doing Facebook live events where I would cover a specific topic in them. And that again has taken a little bit of a hiatus with this other that I'm training for. But um, that's a, a good resource just to go for general information for questions. It's an incredibly supportive group. Um, it's not as big as Johnny's group. It's about 6,000 people in it currently. But it's a wonderful group of people. And there's just not a lot of ego and bravado in there. I don't allow it. Actually, it just is very supportive and uplifting like Johnny's group is. So Okay, great. Uh, I'll post like, links to it in my notes as well. Yeah. Thank you. That would be great because I'd love more the merrier. It's a, a great place to be. So you've alluded to some training. So I, I think this is a good time to start talking about that. I, sure. I know the Smokies are full of hiking challenges. There's things like the 900 miler, of people hiking all of the trails. Now, did you participate in the 900 miler? I did. Yeah, I recently finished over oh Labor Day. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That's a big <laughs> achievement. Yeah, it felt like it. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, talk these days about fastest known times of doing, you know, all sorts of trails. And I like to joke and say that I think I probably have the slowest known time for doing all the trails. It took me about 25 years. But there was a man I met this past weekend on a hike in the park. And he's been hiking in the park since 1946. And he said it took him 50 years. So I told him, oh, darn it. wow. It took away my title. And I thought, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was great. He had a lot of great stories. I think that's a great thing. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe start start a website. Slowest known time. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's really not about the the speed. You know, as long as you're doing it and enjoying yourself and learning and um, just 
having that time in nature. So absolutely, absolutely. No, and I mean, I'm, I get just as excited about the fastest known times too. It's fun to watch it all unfold and watch these, you know, feats of athleticism that I can't even imagine trying to achieve. So congratulations on that again. And, but you're also doing some training. So tell me more about what exactly are you training for? Yeah, so I am training, and all this stemmed from finishing up my map in the Smokies. I thought it's time to now pay it back to this park that's given me all these just profoundly rich and rewarding experiences along the way. And so I knew about a project through Friends of the Smokies Trails Forever program. They restore trails that are just in dire need of restoration work, pretty extensive restoration work. And they were restoring, this year they started a restoration project on the Trillium Gap Trail, which is one of the five trails that leads to the summit of Mount LeConte, which is probably the most iconic mountain besides Klingman's Dome in the whole park. And I also, in the spring, when I heard about that project going on, I also started to hear this buzz on social media about these three guys named Adam who were training for something called the Tour de Leconte Challenge. And it basically entails hiking all five of those trails plus another one to the top of Leconte in 24 hours. But it amounts to about 45 miles and 11,000 feet of elevation gain. So not something, you know, just you do on a whim or do without pretty extensive training under your belt first. And I thought that's a great idea to merge these two ideas together to try to raise money for Trillium Gap since it leads to Leconte by doing the Tour de Leconte fundraiser, you know, because people like to pay attention to somebody doing, you know, something crazy like this. And I thought maybe it'll get some attention. And so far it's, yeah, it has gotten attention and it's been great. So we're trying to raise $5,000. I have a good friend and, and great hiking buddy doing it with me and we're set to do it in late October. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you, are you doing it with someone else, with with a team, or just two of you? It's just two of us. Yeah, it started out, I asked about five people who I knew were capable of training and handling that type of mileage, and, you know, because I was pretty selective with who I did reach out and ask if they were interested, and all of them were on some degree, and some of them even started to train for it, and then decided it's just too much right now, I don't have enough time. And I really respected them so much for backing out because the last thing I want to do is for somebody to go out and do something like that and get injured or not be able to finish, you know, any of those things. And But I had one just, you know, a friend that I knew I could probably count on to stay the course because he likes to do crazy stuff like this as much as I do. And he just finished hiking the, uh, or through hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. So his legs are certainly in, in great shape right now and, and ready for it. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. He's a lot of fun to hike with. And I think it'll be a good time. It'll be a suffer fest for sure. But <laughs> Okay, so you know, that's awesome. Fun. Um, so do you have a date picked out or do you have like a couple dates because of weather? How, how does that work? Yeah, definitely. No, October 26th is when we're aiming for it. That's a Saturday because right now you can't even hike the Trillium Gap Trail during the week because of the restoration work. So we had to reserve it for a weekend. But then if it doesn't work out that day weather-wise, we um, are looking at the first two weekends in November, and that's still to be determined which one of those would be the best one. But yeah, we'll do it before fall's end, you know, as long as we don't have some rogue blizzard that takes us out for a month, which, you know, would be highly unlikely. So tell me about how to train for this type of activity for putting your body through, like you said, it was about 45 miles within 24 hours and that over 10,000, um, how much elevation was that? Yeah. A little over 11,000. 11,000. I was going to say that it feels like it should be more than that. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it's more. Than I know. I was like, I know I've done the, I've done the alum cave, uh, trail 
the to uh, Mount Lacan to the to the Lacan Lodge once um, with my daughter and and that I'm just gonna say it was an incredible incredible experience. So I feel like listeners, if you haven't been to the Smokies or even if you have been but haven't done up Mount Lacan, you need to because it's it's uh, just a beautiful beautiful place. It's a gem. And you, in my opinion, hike the most scenic route to the top. I mean, it's, it's so popular. It's just like an army of people going up and down it every day, but for good reason. You know, it offers a little bit of everything that people want in the Smokies. So yeah, you picked a good one. So I've been up one. <laughs> That's yes. about it. Um, no, I've, I've, I've gone Trillium Gap to Brushy Mountain. And then, uh, you know, that's about it too. But, but so, like, what's your plan? How are you going to tackle this so that you feel ready and, um, you know, mentally, I guess, and physically prepared? Yeah, no, good question. It um, really just entails a lot of hiking. I mean, I, I go to a gym uh, in the Asheville area that focuses a lot on, um, you know, high endurance type interval training, that type of thing, and, you know, some weights. And that. And, and I think that's just as important with any training effort with hiking is to train with some form of weights. And it doesn't mean you have to go out and be this Olympic, you know, bodybuilder type thing. But I think that just doing body weight type stuff, kettlebells, dumbbells, all that is, is so relevant to building up that strength that your legs need. Um, but really, the mainstay of it for me is going out and doing some shorter hikes during the week, but at least one really long, deep dive hike on the weekends usually. And, and that's been amounting to anywhere from like 27 to 30 miles for me lately um, with lots of elevation. I try to incorporate typically a lot of elevation gain and loss just because you're working different muscles with each of those things. Um, and I've really been on the trails to Leconte quite a bit just to hopefully develop some muscle memory for those specific inclines and declines or descents. Is there a specific, I mean, I don't know if you've learned from what the Adams did. Is there a specific way to approach it? Or do you have like a, a kind of this, like this is the, the way I need to go up and down because this is going to strategically be better for me. Is there any of that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, you have to shuttle a car no matter how you do it, just because of the way these trails are laid out or, or walk between them, which would take longer. But driving a car from trailhead to trailhead is acceptable in the challenge. And so you do have to be strategic because some of the car shuttles can be quite lengthy. And, you know, all it takes is one bear jam to really mess your timing up because, you know, you really have to watch the clock so closely. Uh, so, yeah, I have definitely obsessed over the different routes. And Chris always has a more laid back approach than I do to everything in life, I think. But he came up just one day with this great approach that um, I think was the first one that just kind of came out of his head, but it really it made a sense. lot of sense from the you know, standpoint of when we'll be doing it. And so we may go with that one. I'm not sure. We're going to still tinker okay. with it. He's there today on some trails to, to toy with all of it too. So I know you're doing this all for Friends of the Smokies. How can people support you? How can they donate? How can they, you know, kind of follow your progress? What are, what are some ways that we can do that? Yeah, I can provide you with a link to the Friends of the Smokies page that's specifically for this fundraiser. They were um, kind enough to, you know, set up a specific page where all the money gets allocated to this project. Um, and then I am also creating some training videos, which I am a novice at creating videos, so they're almost comical in some ways. But I'm trying to educate people about things like the flora and fauna, safety and preparedness topics along these hikes, um, just as a thank you for people for their support. Uh, so I have a, a newer YouTube channel that I've started really just 
you know, kind of for this event in particular, uh, where I'll be posting those as well as some blog posts that I'll do about it as well. Um, and so that can all be through my blog. So what's your YouTube channel name? Just Hope and Feather Travels, okay. just like my blog. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So yeah, I've got one uploaded already and got one in the queue to, to hopefully go out soon of one of those big days on the trails. So do you have any fears about tackling this? Is there anything, you know, that you're worried about? Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever you put yourself out in the public eye like this, it's always a little daunting. And you're you're certainly opening yourself up to some criticism, too, sometimes with these types of things. But it has been, you know, really, I think, not too scary in that regard, just because I, I knew to expect that from other ways. I've put myself out in the public eye before with other, you know, channels of life. But um, yeah, that's definitely the biggest concern is failing. You know, I mean, just an injury could take you off the trail immediately. And then feeling like I've let down, you know, friends of the Smokies. I mean, not that people wouldn't still donate because they already are and that money would still be there. But, uh, you know, just wanting that, that personal fulfillment of knowing that I've done a good job and, and completed the task and delivered the product that I said I would. You know, but I think physically, as far as that goes, I feel ready now. I mean, I almost feel like I wish it was sooner. So yeah. I can go out and do, do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, on the same hand, it's been so hot. So I'm glad that the weather will be a little bit cooler because that definitely takes its toll on my speed. I know you had said you had to do it on a weekend. So are you, I mean, are you kind of thinking, oh, there's going to be a lot of other hikers I'm going to have to contend with? Or does that even make a difference? It does. Yeah. And I've, you know, already gotten a taste of that just when I've gone out on these training hikes. And most people, you know, if they, they hear you coming up behind or, um, you know, or stopped anyway, because they're resting, they're going to let you by. I mean, mm -hmm. it's rare that I have to, you know, politely ask, do you mind if I scoot on by? I'm just, you know, I'm trying to train for something at a, a certain time. And um, most people are very accommodating. But the last thing I want to do is be that hiker that, you know, really rubs somebody wrong. And it's disrespectful. So I try very hard to be mindful of, of other people's experience when I'm out there. And we're not running it or anything. We're just hiking it. But we both hike at a pretty fast clip, sometimes compared to other hikers. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely a concern. We'll probably start it in the middle of the night just so we can knock out a big chunk of it before people hit the trails. Have you done a lot of night hiking um, so far? Yeah, well, search and rescue, I'd say oh, probably yeah. 50% of our operations are at night because that's when people, you know, they call at five o'clock and say the sun's setting and I don't know how to get out of here. Um, so yeah, I have quite a bit of experience night hiking and, and very comfortable with that and actually enjoy it quite a bit. Well, that's good. So what kind of calories do you need to maintain for that day? Are you thinking about nutrition? Um, are you going to have people help support you? I know you're doing the car shuttle, so I'd imagine you have some people who are going to be lined up to help you with the car. But will people help with meals or, you know, just kind of getting that nutrition and electrolytes and fluid and what you need to keep going? Yeah, definitely. That's still a little bit of a work in progress. The way our shuttle is set up. We really don't need any help. We'll have our own two cars that we can manage most of that with. So okay, we do so self-supported. Yeah, a little bit self-supported at the end. We'll have to have somebody pick us up because we'll end up at a place where we don't have a car waiting. But, you know, we've, we've got very supportive spouses. So I think between the two of them, we'll find a way back to the to the cars without having to walk it. But 
Um, yeah, definitely nutrition is so important and it's something that I take very seriously just in general life, but especially on the trails and I'm still dialing that in. It's been so hot here this early fall that I'm horrible about eating when I'm hot. And so I've definitely been depleted at, you know, the end of these hikes calorically and I know I need to ramp it up. And I uh, bought a, a cookbook just the other day, actually made by a company that makes an electrolyte replacement that I really like from Scratch Labs. It's spelled S-K-R-A-T-C. I've heard of them. I've just heard yeah. of them recently. But, Me too. Okay. It was Johnny. Actually, yes, who that's where I saw it. Yeah, he's a he's an ambassador for him, and he's definitely spreading the word in a very productive way because it, it turned me on to it, and I love the cookbook. It just gives lots of ideas and recipes for portable, you know, energy-type foods that will really fuel you in an efficient way. So I'm looking forward to diving into that, you know, here shortly and, and hopefully giving some of these recipes a try and, and seeing. But, uh, yeah, calories are definitely a, a concern, you know, to, to get enough in as well as fluids and electrolytes, all that stuff. So I think, you know, having another month to really figure it all out will, will serve us well. I think Chris already has a pretty good feel for his own body just since he was doing very high miles as he did the Pacific Crest Trail. So I know that once we get out on some hikes together, I'll, I'll pick his brain too. So I'm sure in the meantime, you'll be posting about some of this on your blog and, and your YouTube channel, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, no, definitely. That was, you know, again, kind of my way to say thank you for people for lending their support, whether it's just, you know, by cheering us on or hopefully making a donation. We're just asking really for a $9 donation if people want a small amount to give to represent each mile of the Trillium Gap Trail. Um, oh, but yeah, that definitely creates some cool. content. Yeah. I think people, yeah, instead of, you know, going out to eat, um, you know, to lunch that day, just nine bucks. That's there it. There you go. Yeah, or two always I'm a big coffee drinker. Yep. So I think you know, two fun coffee drinks. That's all you're giving up. It's easy. Yes. Those are yeah. my weaknesses as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, it's really a big sacrifice. And if everybody would just pitch in that little amount, it would take no time to to raise it. And already we've had just a tremendous uh, you know, showing of support. So I'm excited about it. Okay. And during the day of are you going to document that as well? Have you guys talked about, like, are you going to use a GoPro or take some video? Are you going to do anything to uh, to share that progress? Yeah, definitely. I will, I'm sure, record some footage just on my phone like I've been doing on these training hikes. I don't know how easy it will be to share it live. I'd love to be able to, you know, put it on a Facebook Live or something like that. But I just don't know reception-wise if it would be more trouble. I know there's this one spot that you can get reception. Oh, really? Okay. But but that's about it. I mean, you know, it it is, I mean, and that's, you know, and speaking of being safe, I have a little Garmin and Reach Mini um, that I bought because, yeah, I mean, a lot of these hikes in the mountains, you can get reception in places, but, um, but more than not, and you're not, so. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, anybody who has an InReach Mini or any of those type PLB devices, satellite devices, is yeah, it's it's a game changer as far as your safety if you should ever run into problems. So so good on you for having one because I know it's an expense, but definitely one that you'd be glad you had if you needed it. Um, but yeah, we'll be tracking actually because I have an InReach as well, so I could you know lay a trail of breadcrumbs. Yes, as, you so should do cool. that. That's really yeah. exciting. People can follow along. Definitely. Now, I'm glad you said that because I forget that it does that because I just really use it for the SOS capability or to message my husband if I'm in camp alone or whatnot. But yeah, that's a great idea. So I'll definitely do that because it'd be fun, I know, for people to see where we are. So you have this coming up. Are you thinking anything beyond that? Or right now you're just focused on this 
challenge at hand. Yeah, I mean, I've always got things kind of working in my brain in the pipeline, but yeah, I've really just focused with a lot of intentionality on this one in particular, just to really ramp up the energy about it. But uh, yesterday I was on a hike just here in Haywood County, just a short one to train. And I thought, you know, I haven't ever hiked all the trails in the Pisgah District of Pisgah National Forest. And it's a challenge called the Pisgah 400 that the Carolina Mountain Club puts on. And I thought that'd be a good one to tackle over the winter because it's close to home. Um, You know, a lot of the trails are just more quiet. They're not so overgrown like they get in the summer just because a lot of them aren't used regularly. Uh, so that's that's probably next on my radar, I think. It's give you I'm going to have one. to look that one up. I haven't heard of that yeah. one. And there's a fire tower challenge as well. I, I, I love the fire towers. So yeah, I just recently yeah. went to the frying pan uh, fire tower. I thought that's where you were. Yes. Yeah, I love fire tower. Yeah, there's so much fun. It really is a fun one. So that one my kids could even get involved with. So I thought about tackling that one too, because they're not as big into hiking as I am. And so I have to have to put some kind of carrot at the end of the trail for them to be excited about it. Well, as we close out, I want to ask you to kind of give, you know, for someone who's not familiar with the area or is maybe planning their first trip or, you know, to the Smokies or, you know, just down in the Blue Ridge Mountains, Are there some hikes or places that you just say, just make that happen, try to see, you know, these couple of things if you, you know, are coming down? What are some of your favorites? Ooh, yeah, that's a long list sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, those are just so many good ones. Really, I always ask the second question to that one, because I do get that question quite a bit, is what most interest you, you know, is it waterfalls, lush forest, or, you know, high mountain vistas, that type thing. And so then my, my answer is typically channeled in a way that suits, yeah, based on that. But I mean, you know, talking about LeConte, if somebody asks, you know, what's one trail I should hike in the Smokies while I'm here, I often send them up Alum Cave. I think that it's just that spectacular. And, you know, the fact that it's the only lodge in a national park that you can't drive to, that's pretty special, too, just to see that. Um, so that one is usually the, you know, high mountain view type trail I recommend. Um, but if people want something more like a, a waterfall, it's hard to beat Ramsey Cascades, even though it's incredibly popular and a lot like LeConte, that there's usually a lot of people on it. It's for good reason. It's just stunningly beautiful and it's a neat hike the whole way up. And then the falls are spectacular. All right. Well, I'll make sure I'll put links to those trails also in the show notes so people can go out and, um, kind of learn more about them. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Well, and people are always welcome to reach out to me and yes. just ask, you know, I, I love to connect with people who look at my blog for whatever reason they want to look at it, whether it's to look at a trip report or learn about some type of outdoor education topic. One of my favorite things to do is to interact with people on a one-on-one basis because, you know, that's where your your real connection forms. So uh, I have a contact link somewhere on the website. I think it's on the About Me page, but people are more than welcome to reach out if they have questions. So what's the best way to reach you? Are you saying um, go out to the blog Probably so, or, or the Facebook page, you know, the Hope and Feather Travels Facebook page. I do try to keep it separate from my personal page just because, you know, a lot of people on my personal page don't want to hear about my hiking endeavors. And so that's usually... Oh, that's, that's too bad, good. right? I know. I struggle I mean, with that too. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. You know, everybody has their own interest yeah. in it. So yeah, but I try to keep it a little bit separate. Well, good luck to you and Chris on the hiking uh, challenge coming up. I can't wait to follow it and see how you guys do and I will, um, I'll be definitely cheering you on. Oh, thank you. Yes, I'm excited. And yeah, um, I love your, your 
comment about the inReach. We'll definitely try to figure that out, or I know I'll be able to figure it out before then and uh, show the progress as we go, I hope. All right. Thank you. Thank you, and take good care. Thanks again for listening today. Check out the show notes for links to Nancy's blog called Hope and Feather Travels, and then also how you can donate to Friends of the Smokies and their Trails Forever program. I also have links uh, so you can connect with Nancy and also learn more about the Tour de la Conte Challenge and much more. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, if you're a regular listener or, you know, you just popped in and found this episode, please leave me a review on iTunes, help other people find it and share this episode out with one of your friends. Word of mouth is really the best way to help this podcast grow organically. Also, I wanted to let you know that I did get in my journals and I had mentioned that in the last episode, I created two journals, one for 52 hike challenges and then another just a a regular hiking journal. So head over to my Instagram um, at the hike podcast and you can see two videos about what the journals look like and how I created them. And again, they will be um, offered up as part of a giveaway for my 50th episode, which is also the closeout of season one. It's coming pretty quickly, but I do have a few more episodes to share for this season, and I am really looking forward to sharing all of them with you. So until next time, see you on the trail.